Hello, and thank you for joining us. Welcome to Zooming In on Hate, a monthly webinar bringing together the brightest minds to figure out solutions to hate speech and disinformation. So every month we're going to speak to various voices from tech, civil society, law enforcement, and policymakers to help identify and analyze the latest social media trends. And just so you know, this webinar will be shared as a podcast. Yes. And this webinar is part of the European Observatory of Online Hate, or EOOH in short, which is a two-year investigation into the fundamental nature of the dynamics of online hate, how hate manifests itself, the connections between perpetrators and their influence, as well as disinformation strategies. So I'm Lydia Corey, And my name is Jordi Nijenhuis. So in the first episode, we're really delighted to welcome two pillars of the European community who are doing their best to combat hate and disinformation. Firstly, we're going to speak to Guy de Pau, who is the CEO of Textgain. And next, we'll speak to Miro Dietrich, who is co-founder of the organization CIMA, um, which stands for the Centre for Monitoring Analysis and Strategy. And we're going to speak to Miro specifically about QAnon in Germany. So we'll kick off this webinar with a little chat and afterwards we'll open the floor for any questions you are having. Um, you can use the Q&A function in Zoom to submit your questions at any time. So let's get started. Great. So he thanks so much for joining us on our inaugural episode of Zooming In on Hate. Let's start the ball rolling by just asking you to tell us a little bit about Textgate. Thank you, Lydia, and thank you for having me. Um, so, TextGain, um, it's a spin-off of the University of Antwerp, um, where I worked for uh, longer than I care to remember. Um, and we had developed a lot of uh, technologies, natural language processing technologies at uh, the university. And uh, we were kind of curious to see what would happen if we uh, tried to commercialize it. So that's why we founded uh, TextGain um, back in 2015. Um, in particular, it was it, it was uh, the valorization effort of uh, a project called Amica, uh, where we investigated uh, social media monitoring tools to find harmful situations for young people online, such as cyberbullying and um, uh, grooming by pedophiles. Now, initially, Textcane was was a purely commercial company, uh, just using. Uh, natural language processing to uh, you know, tackle commercial problems. But along the way, kind of our roots of, of uh, deploying this technology for societal purposes uh, came back to the surface. Um, and uh, nowadays, we uh, do both commercial stuff as well as um, AI for good stuff. So, so th those are a, a lot of very technical terms, um, NLP, AI for good. Um, can, can you give us a quick flavor of the projects that TechScan is working on? Uh, sure. Um, let me introduce uh, NLP, uh, because th there's also two types of NLP. Uh, there's neuro-linguistic programming, which we don't do, and then there's natural language processing. And so uh, we are into natural language processing, and, and that's, uh, you know, implementing techniques so that computers can handle language in, in a broad sense. Um, as for projects, um, we, uh, we have a few um, uh, rolling right now. So first of all, our flagship project, the European Observatory of Online Hate, 
that's going on. We also have uh, another project uh, called the Commit Project, where we also uh, monitor social media to look for um, uh, to look for societal uh, tensions uh, in in a few of those uh, target countries such as, such as Germany and Italy. Um, and then there's also uh, the IMSIP project, um, where we uh, work with people, uh, again, in Italy and Slovenia to also develop uh, hate speech detection technologies. There we uh, look at a machine learning angle, so uh, machines that learn from examples, so to speak. And then finally, we also just started the Benetmo project, which is a regional hub of the European Digital Media Observatory. And there we will be uh, developing technologies specifically uh, to detect um, early signs of disinformation. Great, thanks. Um, you mentioned uh, the European Observatory on Online Hate as the, um, as the flagship project. Can we zoom in on that? What, what is the objective of the project? Sure. Um, I, I think uh, the idea came about when uh, we, we finished uh, Project Grey, um, that uh, Jordi was also involved in. Um, and we, I think we were halfway through the DTEC project. And we noticed that we, we have all of these, uh, you know, little components, these building blocks available. And um, EOH was kind of, uh, the idea was to, you know, consolidate all that work into like a single uh, point of reference in terms of our technology for hate speech uh, detection. And so um, I'm not saying that we, uh, we did bad things in Project Grey, but we certainly made a lot of mistakes along the way. Uh, and we figured EOH was, was, was an opportunity to put those lessons learned into practice. And um, so what's going on there is that we are, um, uh, like I said, to bring all those building blocks together, uh, but this for all 24 European languages. So we wanted to go uh, uh, to try and cover uh, the entire continent of Europe and build hate speech detection technologies um, for all the European languages. Um, on top of that, we also wanted to make sure that this, this technology is not built in a vacuum. And so that's where uh, our, our project partners come in, uh, like Dare to be Grey and, and uh, PDCS and University of Utrecht, uh, to make sure that what we're building kind of survives uh, first contact with, with uh, what particular practitioners might want to do with that technology. So, so that's, that's a pretty, well, massive task uh, ahead of you. Um, could you maybe paint a picture of what that looks like? What, what's the added value of the technology that you're developing for uh, first-line practitioners like us? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think uh, what, what we try to do, and, and I'll, I'll set the bar really low, um, we, we all know that that's, Toxicity and hate speech on social media is, is on the rise, right? Um, we can all we can all feel it, and at uh, at, at the lowest bar, we what we want to do is uh, add some numerical data to that. That yes, if you do data analysis on that using automated techniques, we get uh, the exact same outcome. So that's 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 kind of like the basis of, of what we try to do. But of course. Having all that data at our disposal, we want to, you know, uh, step up a little and uh, and get even better insights uh, from that, and also make those insights actionable. Thanks, He. So, 
let's kind of talk about the concept of transparent AI and keeping a human in the loop. Whenever you're talking in, within civil society, if you're talking about AI, it's always pegged on transparent AI and keeping a human in the loop. Mm -hmm. But for those who might have an insight, can you dig a bit deeper into that for us, please? Yeah, yeah. So there's been massive advances in artificial intelligence in the last couple of years, especially um, in the application of, of what we call neural networks. Uh, that's a computational architecture that tries to mimic um, the way we understand the human brain works. And there's there's been all these hardware changes um, that allow us to run those those techniques very efficiently. Now, the problem with those new techniques compared to um, the, the more traditional approaches to AI is that um, we can observe that they are very good at performing certain tasks, tasks uh, automating certain tasks, but they are often so complex that we don't really understand how they're able to do it. Um, and that in, in some cases that doesn't matter. You just want, it's okay to have a black box that performs a certain task. But when you're working with uh, sensitive topics and, and hate speech detection is certainly one of them, you want, uh, you, you, you can't get away by using a black box because a black box is going to take a, a social media post and say, okay, this is offensive. Uh, but we want to know what was the thought process of the machine uh, in, in uh, deciding whether or not something is offensive. And so that's why uh, we, we think it's essential that AI is, is transparent in, in a way that you not only understand how it works, but that you can also, um, you can also adapt it so that, so that when it does make certain mistakes or when you do see it has certain kinds of biases that, that you can actually intervene. So, so I think that that also links to to a, a broader discussion around algorithms and the impacts of well the algorithms of social media specifically on society. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of people, well, that they claim that these algorithms are not ethical. Do you think we need ethical AI, ethical algorithms in a broader sense? Could that be a solution to to online hate? Um, to online hate, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if, if that's, a, that's a solution. Um, what is worrisome is that there's a lot of technologies out there that are being used that um, are based on historical data, uh, human knowledge, which carries a lot of biases in it. Um, for instance, what, what, what we, we often work with what we call word embeddings. Um, what you do is you you let a machine read millions and millions of documents, and then it comes up with with its own conceptual model of what it has learned. And so you can observe that model has learned that um, Paris is to France as Brussels is to Belgium, and you can query query those algorithms. Now, what you see in those algorithms is that um, the word doctor um, is, is um, no, let me start again. The word nurse is often associated with uh, female properties, whereas the word doctor is associated with male properties. And that's because, you know, we, we just fed, force fed it, um, you know, hundreds of years of human bias, but those systems are now being used to perform certain kinds of AI tasks. And, and those methods are, or those biases are ingrained. 
And um, I, I'd like to show a little example of it because it actually gets worse. Um, you have those, the, there's a new, new techniques that are even smarter at figuring out a world, a, a world model of trying to explain what, what it has learned from observing uh, data. Um, I don't know if you know the show Family Feud, where uh, you get a theme and then you have to, you know, uh, guess a couple of words. We can actually do that to those AI systems as well. Um, you can you can do that uh, online. I, and if you do something like this, um, most questions are capable of what question mark you you query what what do you as an AI think that most questions are capable of? Then you get this kind of output. Uh, Number one is prayer, number two is healing, number three is salvation, number uh, four is praying, uh, and so on and so forth. Now, if we ask the same question, most, cap most, most Muslims are capable of what? Then the top one answer is prayer, but the answers that come below are violence, killing, and suicide. Now, no, nobody told the AI to think like that, but if, you're, if you are fed all of that data containing all of those biases, that's exactly what the model has learned. So applying those AI models um, in very sensitive tasks, such as hate speech detection, requires a lot of um, human involvement. And so that's what we like to call uh, the human in the loop approach, making sure that um, the AI does what it does best, you know, process a lot of data, you know, dumb repetitive work, but the actual, uh, final decision should remain uh, with humans. Thanks, He. And can I ask you, do you think or do you believe that AI can help with countering online hate? Yeah, as long as uh, we, we do it responsibly. Um, I think um, AI left by itself is, is, is very good for trend analysis, for you know observing relative differences over time. Uh, but when it comes to um, stuff like um, like moderate moderators' approaches uh, to uh, uh, you know social media management. I think it is it is important that there's a human in the loop. Now there's a, there's another project uh, that that we did uh, the rhetoric project where we also investigated whether our hate speech detection technology can be used uh, at the source of a uh, of a commenting tool. So people like to comment on the news. Um, but a lot of people don't, don't do it anymore because you just get into, you know, mudslinging online. And so in the rhetoric project, we, uh, we helped design a new way of commenting on the news. And there we had a reflective interface where as people were typing, the interface would tell you um, what you are saying now is very offensive. Are you sure you want to post? We didn't prevent anybody from posting it, but we did trigger some kind of reflection on, on what, what people were writing. And that seemed to have uh, fairly good results. Great. Thanks, Guy. Um, I'm going to ask the people in the room um, to submit their questions. If you have any, there's a Q&A button somewhere down in your screen. Um, feel free to submit your questions there. Um, but I also have one, luckily. Uh, I'm quite curious, and I think we're going to ask this to everybody who's joining us here in Zooming In on Hate. Um, if you had a magic wand, what would you do to make social media a better, safer, and more enjoyable space? 
I wasn't expecting that one. Um, it's 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 so complex. Uh, intuitively, I would say social media um, should spend more time and effort on on uh, moderators. Um, we, we, we've all been there. We've reported something to a social media platform, and then you don't hear anything, or it takes weeks to uh, to hear something back. Uh, but then also the the moderators themselves are are th that's a very tough job as well uh, to to uh, to do that. You know, to uh, uh, go through actually the worst of mankind uh, for for your entire working day. So yes, I. I, I, I guess I would personally uh, invest in uh, more AI to help those moderators, uh, you know, at least get uh, the worst parts out of it automatically as, as soon as we are comfortable enough doing so. Um, and um, yeah, I think that's that's where I would go because I think there's something inherently wrong with how, the way social media platforms are, are handling public debates. So. So on that, he, I mean, would you be in favor of delete first, ask questions later, or is it a, a, a mix of the two? Um, yeah, there could be something like a quarantine, maybe, where, um, where messages need to be um, read and, and, and approved. I think a lot of uh, Facebook pages are already doing that. Great. Uh, any questions in the chat, you're, you're very, very welcome um, to ask them now or at any point during, during this webinar. So if there are no questions for he right now, please feel free to save them to the end and we'll move on to our second guests today. Miro Dietrich and Miro is the co-founder of the organization CMAS, the Center for Monitoring Analysis and Strategy. Miro, thanks a million for joining us today. Can you tell us a little bit about CMAS? It's it's pretty new. Um, why did you start it and what's the mission? Yeah, we started CMAS about a year ago uh, officially. Uh, our project launch was a bit later, but CMAS grew out of the idea of several different researchers working all on this issue of um, online hate of um, the far right of conspiracy ideologies using the internet to further their agenda. And we've sort of missed an organization who has a multidisciplinary approach, who brings in a lot of different experts, uh, who's more uh, on the younger side to, to have a better understanding of the internet and focus on these issues. And we sort of try to get away from a lot of feelings-based um, arguments that we see in, in, um, in our field and have more um, uh, evidence-based approaches to sort of um, um, reduce the gap between um, the research side and the civil society side. Can you give us an example of, of something that less emotion, more evidence? One uh, topic that definitely always brings my blood to boiling is uh, when people complain about bots being a relevant part. So far, we can't really see any bots being active anywhere to a degree that it changes anything. But bots, uh, social bots is often uh, just an add-on in this debate, but I don't see any evidence at all for this being a useful tool or a widespread phenomenon. 
Oh, that's that's very interesting, Vito. Thank you. Um, and we also we ask you to to shed some light or to zoom in on Germany for for this webinar. Um, so so I would like to to focus on that for a bit, um, because I once read that Germany has the biggest QAnon community outside of English speaking countries. Um, why do you think that this is the case? It's definitely really complicated to have a clear single answer to this. I think um, there's a lot of different reasons that maybe um, are part of this. So for one, in Germany, we have a really frustrated scene of the far right and of the conspiracy world. They weren't able to do any big movements or to reach any goals. The far right party is not successful at all. So I think this um, narrative of QAnon that there's this magic savior from the outside, the strong man, and there will be this one magic event, the storm where everything will be right, I think drew a lot of people in. It sort of gave them hope, uh, gave them a way out of their um, experienced misery. And on the other hand, um, in the beginning, QAnon and the sovereign citizen movement in Germany, the Reichsbürger movement, sort of merged pretty close together and their narratives worked pretty well with each other. And so they got sort of an, an embrace and a boost from the start. And I think these two reasons are um, why it worked pretty well in Germany. In general, you can say that QAnon wasn't really an issue in Germany before the pandemic. Uh, we saw some um, signs of it on the, the German version of the Yellow West protest and some far-right extremists um, propagated the ideas of QAnon, but it was always just a, a side thing. But in the beginning of the pandemic, it really exploded here. For the pandemic, the biggest Telegram channel who posted QAnon content has had 20,000 subscribers. And within two weeks, it, um, in mid-March, it was 40,000, then quickly 60,000. And now the biggest QAnon uh, channel has uh, 170,000 subscribers. So it was quite an explosion during the pandemic. So um, we all had the pandemic, but I think in Germany, it sort of hit more. We've got a question from Anna in the chat, and she wants to know, what is QAnon's view on the Russian invasion of Ukraine? Bad. <laughs> it's really hard to read at the moment if you see the pictures and um, they're just parroting the Russian talking points. So in the beginning, it was mostly about um, Putin doing a denazification of Ukraine. This was a strong point, maybe mostly um, before the um, before the invasion, the NATO, it, it's just self-defense talking points were really strong. Now we sort of see an emergence of this idea that um, there were bioweapon labs in Ukraine and Putin has put in an end to it. I think that's one of the most prominent um, explanation of it all. And Pew, uh, Ukraine is a really important country in the QAnon lore. And if we remember back the sentence for that, for that, for that Trump got impeached, I would like to do us a favor though. It was about arming um, Ukraine, um, where Putin asked for something back. So um, the, the other part of uh, this sort of lore is um, the Hunter Biden, the son of Biden, who supposedly has deep connections uh, with Ukraine. So in the QAnon world, Ukraine is basically just a puppet for US interests, for the deep state of the US. So if someone were to fight Ukraine like Putin, it only can be a, a good thing. 
so so what would you say that the impact of these these narratives um and and the ones from QAnon specifically um have on german society then i think a really clear thing uh, that we can see is that um, QAnon is has become um an accelerator of the global far right um, in the us the QAnon scene is heavily linked with the far right and in germany as well and the German QAnon um, believers translate the US uh, content very quickly and spread it very widely in Germany. So all the talking points of the far right from the US are translated and spread here in the broader far right very easily. And I think in this, it was a way more successful um, machine than the alt-right was at its time when they tried to sort of spread this US far right uh, talking points to Germany. On the other hand, um, I see a lot of the, the smaller talking points being um, sort of accepted now in, in the far right or in the conspiracy world in Germany, especially this idea about the Satanist elite um, who is sacrificing children is pretty well um, known or pretty well accepted in, in the German far right and conspiracy scene. The other impact that we've seen was that during our last general election, these talking points about a stolen election, about voter fraud, were just imported and a lot of people started parroting um, this idea with sometimes a bit ludicrous um, moments when they talked about um, that the Dominion voting machines are controlled by some parties in Germany Although we don't have any Dominion voting machines like in the US because we don't have any voting machines at all. So it's hard for um, this narrative to really make sense. Um, do you, just to follow one question, Miro, do you think it's translated into real world harm? On the one hand, um, so first of all, I think being online is part of my real world. So being harassed in the digital space is, is real world harm. Uh, I, I don't think that, um, especially in the last two years that we had, I think a lot of our real life was in the digital space. So um, I often don't like uh, to separate these spaces um, so clearly. Um, we definitely see a lot of harassment campaigns coming from QAnon. So um, I think uh, especially politicians, um, small um, local officials um, had to deal with a lot of harassment from the QAnon scene. Uh, we see some harassment against youth workers and when um, the parents of um, the when the children of uh, QAnon believers get into trouble and it, it's the state wants to take away the children because there's a harming of the children often um, QAnon believers um, harass these uh, youth workers who deal with this, this situation so I think um, this is definitely one thing where we've seen a negative impact of QAnon. And the other influence that we had in Germany is um, when uh, on January 6th, the capital was stormed in the United States last year. For a lot of German people, we had a similar image of this um, because in the year before um, our parliament, what far-right extremists tried to storm our parliament. And luckily they didn't get in and they were stopped at the door. But um, to understand the situation, um, there was a big march in Berlin and there was a, an um, event in front of our Reichstag 
And then a QAnon believer stepped up to the microphone and said, Trump just landed in Berlin and we have to show him our support. And that was the reason why people tried to storm our parliament building. So it's not just a, a niche phenomena, it actually has an impact. And when you say harassment, Vera, what, like, how do you define that? Because there's quite a broad spectrum of incidents that you mentioned there. So in QAnon, these QAnon people believe that um, all their enemies are satanistic, child sacrificer, that they're causing a lot of harm. So of course, um, when they define someone as an enemy for some reason, um, they start sending threatening emails, they harass them on the street, um, and they try to make the digital, digital experience for these people hell. And in one example um, where we have sort of a sect of QAnon, a splitting of QAnon in a sense, where more the uh, sovereign citizen talking points dominate. These are people um, who believe that um, the military rule of the US is still um, active in Germany. They call it shave laws. Um, and we had one a QAnon believer who proclaimed to be a commander of this military rule and he regularly issued death warrants and asked his followers to kill these people. And so um, I think I would count that as harassment. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, it, it's, it sounds in a way like it's, it's still very much USA oriented as a group. Um, the things they're focusing on, the things they're replicating in Germany. Um, but after some digging around, I also encountered, and, and pardon my German, the terms Denker and Front. Um, how, how do these terms and definitions link to the, the broader spectrum of QAnon? Uh, these are uh, different phenomena. So the Querdenken scene is um, a group uh, started in the south of Germany as a protest to the measurement against the pandemic. And they try to differentiate them more from the far right mobilization that we've seen in the east. If you look more closely, you can pretty clearly see that they're heavily linked with sovereign citizen talking points. And their uh, leader said at one of the demonstrations, where we go one, where we go all, so this QAnon slogan. Um, but they're not really linked with QAnon, and they're not part of QAnon. And um, Querfront is an old German word who um, talks about the connection when far-right extremists and far-left extremists sort of get together um, for a common enemy. Um, it's something that's been talked about often, um, but I would say it's a bit overblown. And we see a lot of reports in Germany um, about how even esoteric or uh, left-wing people um, um, are part of this movement against the corona mandates. But um, if we look at more closer studies, we can clearly see that um, the vast, vast majority of people marching on these um, demonstrations are voting for the AfD, the far-right party in Germany. So I think um, it's sort of maybe interesting to see non-traditional far-right people at these marches, but it's not um, something that I would call a clear front. And Mira, which of these groups would you say poses the greatest real danger to Germany, in your opinion? I think QAnon was really effective in spreading a lot of um, narratives that have a really bad influence on our society. 
Um, even when a lot of people maybe don't believe in Q and the plan, these narratives still, still spread very widely and lead people into believing they live in this apocalyptic world where the coming downfall is just around the corner and all my political enemies are the worst people that you can imagine. And I think that's something that primes you for violence. So dehumanizing and the enemy and sort of um, making it sound like um, we are in a war and, and children are being harmed. That's sort of the thing that gets you to use to rationalize for yourself that you use violence. So, so let me remind um, the people in the room here that it's uh, that the chat function is still open, the Q and A function as well. Feel free to drop your questions in there. Um, but let me just ask my new favorite question: What would your magic wand policy be, Miro? Yeah, it's really complicated to answer because it's just a problem on so many fronts. I think if we just look at it from a policy side, I think we often encounter now the problems that we deal with these problems once they grew into a stage where they already are hard to stop, where they migrated off platform, off these big platforms. And the focus mostly from big social media companies is to focus on actors and networks. But I think it would be um, more helpful to have a closer look at narratives to see what are um, narratives that lead people down these uh, alternative realities where violence is an option to sort of um, stop these networks from developing because QAnon grew on the big platforms for the longest time. So they had a huge explosion there. And then when they clamped down on um, the spread of QAnon and stopped effectively the presence on platform, and there were people already believed in this worldview. And there's this, uh, a lot of other platforms like Telegram where you can get this information. But I think often we focus a lot on policies, but a lot of the policies are already quite good, but it's more on the enforcement side where I see a lot of problems. So Generation Identity um, is a dangerous organization according to Meta. That means praising them, talking positively about them or they have their presence is not allowed on the platform. It's more of one of the hardest steps that the platform can take, but still there's um, dozens of um, generation identity accounts on Instagram and it, they just changed the name, but in the bio, there's a link. And if you click the link that's to their Telegram channel where I say, hi, we're generation identity Bavaria, for example. So it's not really, um, um, they don't hide it well. It's pretty easy um, to evade these policies who can be really strict sometimes. And I also would um, add that, of course, um, uh, the issue of content moderation is just not in, in the forefront as it should be. These people do a hor horrific job and there need to be more of them. They need to be better paid um, and they need to be better taken care of because the best policies uh, don't bring anything if you don't have people enforcing them in a good way. Yeah, I think everybody in the room knows how harrowing it can be to monitor hate speech and to kind of expose yourself to the level of it. Um, so that really, I'm sure that'll ring true to, to a lot of people who are listening now. Um, I've got a really broad brush question for both of you. Um, if you had to say who the book stops with, I know, I know it's 
it's not a simple answer, but who does who do you think the book stops with first and foremost in the removal of hate and disinformation on our social media platforms? And Miro, I'm going to put you on the spot first. Uh, platforms making a lot of money with uh, social media and Twitter not as much as other platforms maybe. But um, of course, if you're profiting, if you have a business model, it should include the price of um, negating these harms that are caused to society. But on the other hand, um, I think it's often uh, painted in a too simplistic way. Um, these are human emotions. Um, this is, social media just shows us how humans work. And these problems didn't arise with um, social media. And these are societal problems. If you look at surveys of um, far-right ideology, of um, hate-based um, uh, opinions, of anti-Semitism, um, this is not something that changed dramatically after the invention of social media. So I think it's often too easy to have um, to blame societal issues on, on just a technical glitch Great. And um, Guy, can I get your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think um, I, I agree with Mero on, on this one. Um, you know, they're, they're commercial companies and, and um, they don't really set out to uh, you know, polarize society, but uh, apparently that's, that's uh, how they now make money. So even, even if they wanted to, they, they would have to you know, significantly alter their uh, content suggestion algorithms in order not to uh, uh, fall down that trap. So yeah, I, I would also play uh, put the responsibility with the platforms, even though they're you know they're just catalyzing uh, human behavior. Um, ultimately, the blame stops with with us, but we're not going to change. So um, actually, we've got a nice, very um, relevant follow-up question from the audience for you, Guy. Um, because you mentioned uh, about the moderation program that if you ask a person, are you sure that you want to post this offensive message, that the project was su um, successful, even though it didn't prevent anyone from posting, mm -hmm. quote unquote, hate speech. Um, so, so why would you say that this was a successful approach? Um, because we, uh, we had a pretty expensive uh, trial where a lot of people entered um, uh, or tried the the pipeline, and then we we asked them, you know, do you like to do, do you like this? <laughs> and uh, yes, yes, they did. Uh, but what what was most um, comforting was that a lot of people said that you know, I don't comment on the news, but I would if this if this tool was uh, was more uh, broadly available, um, and. There was some something about that that, that I, I really liked because uh, a lot of people don't feel comfortable on expressing opinions on social media. Some people feel too comfortable, uh, but a lot of people don't don't anymore. And um, you know, in a sense, that's also safeguarding freedom of speech. You know, making sure that everybody gets to have their word, even if you don't shout that hard. So we have another question in the chat. Um, I think this is probably directed at you, Miro. What do you think about the German federal government's plan to have law against digital violence? What could be the biggest flaw of this law? The European DSA law. I think um, the big problem that I see when um, 
content moderation or regulation of the internet is happening from state sides that sadly there's often a huge misunderstanding of how digital spaces works that um, civil society really has to be careful um, to um, to speak up on overreaching um, measures that the state wants to pursue that don't really make any sense. Um, for example, right now um, we have the conflict with the new um, NetCG version where several social media companies um, sued against um, that it would be enforced and actually agree with the problems that they have that um, in, in the current version um, social media companies should send all the data of something they find um, could be illegal to, to the police. And um, I don't think that's necessary. I think it would be enough if they only send the, the post the, of the post and only when the state starts um, saying, oh, we want um, to go after this, social media companies uh, should send a lot of these other informations. I don't think sending a lot of private information to the police without there being any um, request by the state to declare something, hey, we have to investigate this is problematic. So I think uh, we definitely have to have a close eye on these developments and not just think, oh, they're doing something against hate. Um, that's probably good. He, did you want to say something there? Um, no, once again, I, I agree with Miro. Uh, personally, I feel it's, it's a bit dangerous anchoring stuff like that in, in law, but this is just my personal opinion um, because um, you never know when there's a regime change and they then they would have uh, all the tools to uh, suppress other kinds of opinions as well. I, I, I'm very wary of that. Okay. I mean, before before we wrap up and in case anybody's typing away a comment in the, in the Q&A, I suppose I'd, I'd, I'd love to hear from both of you, from he and, and Miro. I mean, we thought we we thought that we could, we thought we were in a complex world eight days ago, nine days ago. We thought things were complicated and difficult on social media. And personally, I didn't think things could get any worse, but it looked like we've, we've entered a, a whole new world phase. I'd love to know what, what are you seeing in your work in relation to the war in Ukraine? And what are your initial thoughts about the impact on us, on, on social media and on us? I'll start with Miro, please. I think um, the, the action of Russia's are so clearly invalid and um, non-palatable for most human beings. Um, it's a, a necessity for them to uh, create an alternative reality. And they can't do it on their own. They need amplifiers. And as we've seen in the US election, and as we've seen in Germany and several other cases, the far right and um, the conspiracy ideologues in Germany are um, an, an, a good amplifier and necessary part for them to try to take off the public pressure um, for in, in other countries of them. I think the good thing that we can say right now is that so far from what I've been seeing, so what it's more feeling based right now, I don't have any data, is that it um, didn't really work this time. I, of course, see it uh, spread in these far-right and conspiracy worlds, but I don't think it's, um, it's, it's effective this time leaving these spaces. Other than that, we see um, all the different versions that you can think of. We see um, 
we look more on the uh, violence oriented far right in Germany, they're more on the side of Ukraine. And uh, there's a lot of talk about people going there. We had it in 2014 um, that um, foreign fighters, so fighters from Germany, um, go to Ukraine to the Azov Battalion, for example, to their far right organizations to get educated in fighting and to see it sort of as a nationalistic um, part to be there. On the other hand, we have a lot of Putin apologists, of course, this idea of um, the weak and corrupt degenerated West who is controlled by the deep state in their view, who um, tries to eradicate them with, the, with a fake pandemic and with all the lying press as they see it, telling them one thing. And on the other hand, you have this um, strong um, machismo um, a leader um, who stands for more of a, a traditional um, sense of living, who represses minorities in this country. So um, for most, I think, conspiracy and foreign people, it's pretty easy to decide um, that they're on the side of Putin. Key, over to you. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's interesting. The, you have this, this, this you know, block of uh, shared frame, shared narrative, where if you are, uh, if you don't believe in climate change, then you're also very likely uh, to be Islamophobic, and it, and you're also very likely uh, to have all kinds of weird thoughts about about COVID. And there's there's really no reason why all of those are connected, but they do seem to be like this this same forced narrative. Now we recently saw that that same block. A lot of those people are in support of Putin, um, but you now kind of see it crumbling. Um, and it, it's it's like the first time I'm seeing that that this 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 uh, consolidated narrative is is, is kind of uh, getting fragmented. So I, I I'm very interested to see what happens next. Thanks both. Um, yeah, let's let's try to to end on a happy note. Do you have a short, simple, quick tip what people can do to make the internet a better place? Let's start with Guy. More cats. Solid. I only can second that. <laughs> Beautiful. Thank you so much. Okie doke. So I think we're going to wrap up our first episode of Zooming In on Hate. Miro, he thanks a million for starting the ball rolling on our on our series. And uh, it was it was brilliant to have both your, your thoughts and, and ideas on the situation. Um, because of the evolving situation in Ukraine over the coming weeks, we plan to be zooming in on Ukraine. So there'll be lots of extra content, podcasts and interviews from people on the ground and also people involved in hate speech and disinformation in relation to the war. So um, be sure to sign up for our, our mailing list, www.eoh.eu. Or you can follow our conversation, keep it going on Twitter and LinkedIn. And a special shout out to our funder, the European Commission Rights, Equality and Citizenship Programme by DG Justice. And if you want more information about uh, QAnon in Germany, um, CMAS uh, will uh, publish a report um, in German and English about it at the end of the month, who has a broader look at how big QAnon in Germany actually is. Can you give everybody the website? Zero, it's cmas.io. Great. Q, 
Key, Miro, thanks a million for joining us and uh, all the best for now. Thanks, thanks for having me. Thanks, everybody. Take care. Bye.